In the entire universe, we are nothing but tiny pinpricks revolving around one of one billion trillion stars on a tiny planet which is hurtling through empty space at a speed of more than 50,000 miles per hour. What we do is so insignificant, even if all of humanity were to suddenly go extinct, the universe would continue, unaffected by our existence at all in the first place. However, even if we are so small compared to the rest of the universe, we can still make some pretty big changes on our own Earth, and we still have so much to discover and explore. Today, we will be talking about an animal that is to the Earth what we are to the universe. Absolutely minuscule. Ants. Just a few days ago, I talked to a man who has dedicated his entire life to discovering and uncovering the secrets of these tiny creatures. We talk about how many unintelligent things can make something intelligent, how ants defend their colonies, how they are designated to roles, the most painful ant bites, and so much more. Anyways, without further ado, I present to you Professor Terry McGlynn. My name is Nathan, and this is At Risk. Hi. Hey, how's it going? So um, why don't we just start by introducing uh, yourself and uh, what you do. Hi, I'm Terry McGlynn. I'm a professor of biology at Cal State Dominguez Hills. Um, I also am the director of the Desert Studies Consortium, which means I run a, a field station that's out in the Mojave Desert. Cool. And I know that you are a uh, myrmecologist. What does that mean? That means I study ants. So that's... Uh, that's what I do for a living, really, um, or at least as an academic, you know, we teach, we do all kinds of things. But um, um, yeah, I love ants and I've been working on ants since uh, the mid 1990s. Why did you choose ants? What was it that drew you to them? Well, ants are cool. Um, the is a short uh, answer. The long answer is that um, that it was just circumstance that um, I, I, you know, some entomologists are people who, from when they were little kids, were like, you know, collecting bugs and always been into bugs or, um, and that's not me. I think I was generally interested in, in nature, but no particular focus in insects or bugs or ants in any way. Um, and when I was in college, um, I was pre-med, but not for any particularly good reason. I just thought it would make sense. Like a lot of people who come from like a first generation background think, oh, well, that's a solid career. I guess I'll do medicine. Right. But then when I was taking classes in biology and conservation biology and um, evolutionary biology and entomology, um, then I was like, oh, this stuff is really cool. And, um, and so when I was applying to graduate programs and I sort of decided like when I was interviewing at a medical school, I'm like, this is not what I want to do. I think I want to, you know, study ecology and evolution for a living. And I was just really interested in the evolution of social behavior. Um, how is it that um, you have, you know, social complexity and uh, groups organize 
Um, and clearly ants, you know, are some kind of epitome of social organization. And so I started getting interested in ants that way. Huh. And like, do you think that there was like a eureka moment where you were like, mm, yes, ants, that is what I want to do for the rest of my life? No, no, not really. Um, because the, the way I started getting into ants was almost in a sideways manner where when I was applying to graduate school, like, so my, my epiphany that I shouldn't be going to med school, but I should be going to graduate school in ecology and evolution came kind of late. It was in like December, it was a basically over winter of 1992, 93. And uh, what happened at that point was I missed the boat on applying to graduate schools to if I wanted to go to grad school right after I graduated college. Right. But it turns out that in Europe, they do recruitment for graduate for graduates programs like in the spring, like in the US, you have to apply in the fall there. It's like a few months later. And so there was this newish thing called the Internet where people were advertising on Usenet groups saying, oh, I have a graduate position in my department. And there's this one guy, and I was looking at the ones for uh, entomology and animal behavior. And so there's a guy who had a laboratory in Switzerland um, who was working on the evolution of sociality in ants. And, and so he sent me a bunch of papers to read, um, and I started corresponding with him and reading a lot of adjacent and related papers um, and I ended up not going to his lab, um, but that experience had me diving really deep into the literature about social behavior and social organization in ants. And I was like, oh, this is really cool. And so that way, when I was um, applying to grad schools in the U.S. the following year, I, like I, my interest in that area was already sparked. So it's almost like a chaotic effect. If that mm. guy happened to study butterflies, then maybe I'd be doing butterflies now. If you study right. beetles, maybe I'd be doing beetles. But I mean, clearly now, I, I mean, if I wanted to do those things, I could. I think, oh, ants are super duper cool. But I got into it from a from a sideways perspective. And I think early on in grad school, you know, I, I saw them as a good way to ask questions about ecology. Like ants in many ways are easy to study compared to a lot of other organisms. And right. in some ways they're hard because they live underground, you know, because you can't study whole colonies that are underground, obviously. But um, and so for that, so, you know, I've always I've I've often said that the kinds of questions that I ask in ants that might take me a few weeks or a field season to do, if you're to do in birds, could take a whole career because right. it just takes so long to find nests and find out what the nests are doing and so on. But in ants, you go bam, 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 and you can collect large amounts of data in a small period of time. Right. And um, about about ants and like their social um, like relations with each other. I know that there's this really big topic when you think of like hives and colonies um, called emergence. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So I mean, so the the emergent phenomenon is that a colony of ants is greater and distinct from the sum of its parts. If you take an individual ant then it is just a single individual. But when you have all of these individuals networked together, then um, then that organism like is a super organism. The colony functions um, as its own distinct unit and it has its own properties that the individuals don't have. And so, like, for example, there is this one uh, paper that came out, gosh, at least 10 years ago, where they looked at 
the respiration of of ant colonies. Like they would look at, at gas exchange about how much oxygen they would consume and how much uh, CO2 they would release. Wait, and in individual ants or in colonies? No, actually of whole colonies, which was which was what's cool about this paper. I mean, because to do it in individual ants, people have done for a long time. You need fancy equipment to measure those small quantities of of gases, but you can do it. You know, right. there's those types of chambers and instrumentation do exist. But what's interesting is they would take whole colonies and put them in chambers or measure them in some way and basically found that if you look at colonies of different sizes, that the way that they basically um, they function the same way that um, that vertebrates do. Like they, in other words, they don't the physiology of a colony as a collective is is distinct from the physiology of individual um, ants. And so when you put them together, they actually do physiologically function as a superorganism. The way that they uh, conserve energy. Um, and so like, so the amount of energy that you consume is like a function of your volume. Like it's like how big you are and there's a scaling property. And so as the colonies get larger and larger, then the, the physiological function of the colony as a unit is not just by adding all the individuals together. It's actually collectively of them all together. Mm, um, but, but also, I mean, the other interesting things about emerging emergence with you know, social insects, you know, is that also it's just in terms of how they behave and make decisions if they choose to go collect food at a particular time or the colony chooses to move to a location or a colony attacks another colony, right? Those are group level decisions that are the product of interactions between the individuals. It's not like there's there's a stereotype that the queen is the one who somehow runs the colony and makes commandments, but really actually the workers run the show, but in a collective manner. Right. And on the topic of uh, ant roles in a colony, how are those like decided? Well, there's okay. So I could, there's a sentence or there's like a, you know, uh, or a book or many books about this. Cause really we collectively, the people who've been studying ants have been trying to ask, answer this question, you know, for many, many decades. Um, you know, just with any, you know, question, the more answers you get, the more, questions that emerge from that. And so, mm -hmm. um, so there's a lot of flexibility um, at, in, in, and how ants choose to have a particular role or don't have a particular role. Um, and so if you look at colonies where you have ants that are different sizes, you know, so for instance, uh, leafcutter ants are a good example. You have these really, really big leafcutter ants and these little dinky leafcutter ants and there are ones in between. And the big ones are chopping big, big stems the little ones ride up on top of leaves and chase away parasites and groom the leaf or against fungi. And then the medium sized ones are, you know, patrolling and cutting the leaves and, you know, and so their size dictates their role. But if you were to remove ants from one particular size class, then those other ants will switch into that role. Um, but also there are many ants where they're all the same size or roughly the same size, but then you still have these distinctions where some ants perform some roles and some ants do others. And so it's partially a function of, of their genetics. So there are some, because there's genetic variation within ant colony, some ants will have different genes than others. And so these genes will be associated with their role to some extent, but it's also a product of their environment, where they're from, their context in the colony. 
um, and where they are positioned at a moment when something happens. But then also it's a function of their age. And so the things that a young ant does are different than what an older ant does. Mm -hmm. So um, usually, and the same thing happens with honeybees as well, that the older ants are the ones that usually are sent out to forage because that's a risky behavior when you're leaving the colony to look for food. Right. And so, um, and so since you're more, more likely to do that, then you probably want to get as much work out of them before you send them off into the, the risky thing. Is it like instinctive that they go out into the wild when they get older or is there like somebody else telling them like, Hey, go do this. That's a good question. So we can't, it's, it's like, we can't look, you know, to their minds to understand what their motivations are. Right. So that's, right. um, so, but you could change, you could, um, change their environment and see if it changes their behavior. And so there's, um, a lot, one conceptual model that we use to think about whether an ant chooses to do a certain thing or not is whether or not they perceive that the work needs to be done. And so the, the fancy term for that is called the stimulus response threshold model. The other idea is there's something outside, which is the stimulus and that they are responding to that stimulus, but then they have a certain threshold level at which whether or not that needs their work to be done. So the classic example is, let's say you look in a, in a house, in a kitchen, and there's dirty dishes piling up in the kitchen, and there's two people living in the house. Odds are it's probably going to be one person who ends up doing the dishes rather than both people. And the reason that person does the dishes is they're like, oh, there's so many dishes, I, it's too dirty, and so I need to clean this because I feel the kitchen needs to be cleaned. Right. But the thing is it, but the thing is two different, but the reason that one person always cleans those dishes is their stimulus response threshold for those dirty dishes is a lower threshold than the other person. So for instance, oh, okay. my spouse is get, right. So my spouse is like, oh my gosh, there's five dirty dishes. That's far too many. And I'm like, oh, I wouldn't clean the dishes until there's at least 20. And so she's going to be cleaning them first. And so we know in social insects, this kind of thing happens where ants, some individuals will have different stimulus response thresholds than others. So some ants get notice that there's not much food, so then they will be going out to forage. Other ants will notice that the larvae haven't been tended. And so then they're like, oh, then that's the thing that they will need to do. Or some other ants might notice that the nest needs to be excavated in a particular place because it's not large enough. And so they'll start excavating. And so um, that's a that's a simplistic way of looking at it, but, um, but that clearly, and what shows that some ants have, we've shown other people have shown in their research that, that there's a genetic basis to the stimulus response thresholds. And so some individuals have, um, based on, you know, basically their composition, what makes them up have, um, are going to be more likely to be foragers and others are more likely to be nurses, for example, because of their uh, different sensitivity towards what needs to be done. So the short answer is that there's a lot of different variables that determine <laughs> what jobs need to be done. That's what I'm going to take right. out of that. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's like, yeah. Yeah. So uh, another question is, cause I didn't know this until very recently, but most ants are females. Yeah. So if you see an ant wandering around outside the, like if you look at an ant, it's like going to be a female, basically. They're all female. Mm -hmm. And so the the exceptions are 
if you see an ant that has wings, um, then that's, and it's small, then it's going, and you might not even recognize it as an ant because it looks different from the other ants, right. um, then that's going to be the male. And so the males are produced, um, um, you know, in mass quantities by the colony as the reproductive effort. And so you can think of when a colony produces new queens and new males, that's kind of like a tree producing fruit, right? And so that's how the tree reproduces and makes new trees is that the fruit goes off and then the seeds come out and then it creates a new plant. And so mm -hmm. a colony as the superorganism will create these new queens and these new males, which then will go off um, and then have, have sex and the males will die off and the queens will start a new colony. Um, in general, that's, um, that's how it called. So when you're, but the, when the colony is just doing normal work and living on a day-to-day -day basis, um, then yeah, it's all female. Yeah. So, so can a colony keep reproducing upon itself? Like, will it use some of the males that they create to further their own colony or do they only produce the males to be sent off into like branch colonies? Right. So the stereotype of ant colonies, um, for people who know enough to know about these stereotypes, right, is that um, that ant colonies will create these males and queens that then will just disperse off to form new colonies. But there are many species of ants that actually will keep the queens inside the nest, and then the males inside that nest will then fertilize those queens, and those queens will then be part of that nest. So some ant colonies have many, many queens inside them. And so um, the, there, so the different ways, different strategies that ants have of reproducing in different ways, which we call different kinds of life histories. Um, you know, every life history you imagine probably exists somewhere in some, spe some of the, you know, the 20,000 ant species in the world that are out there. Um, and some of them actually do have the males stay and mate within the nest and then die and don't disperse out. When it comes to like defending their colony, what are some of the different ways that different ants like have um, evolved to defend their own colony? Uh, so, oh, there, there are so many um, different kinds of ways. It's, it's exciting. So if, I think the first uh, important concept for, for ant colony defense is that is, is structural, is that the, the nests themselves are often heavily protected, right? And so they are underground in these tunnels and so they're difficult to access. Um, and so, but then other kinds of defense is that some ants, but not all ants have stingers and those stingers have venom in them. And so just like if a honeybee were to sting you and just squirt venom inside you, then some ants like fire ants, for example, or bullet ants have these stingers and the stingers will be injected this venom into you, which is painful and, and hurts. There are some ants though, that don't have these, um, these stingers, but instead they have a pore on their butt. And so they basically bite you and then and you spray acid out of that pore, like mm. formic acid is the most common one. Um, and then that hurts. <laughs> and so mm. the fact that an ant doesn't have a stinger doesn't mean it can't hurt you um, because sometimes it could really, really hurt just if enough of them bite you and spray acid on you. It's bad. What's, but, what's um, the most painful uh, ant bite that you've ever received? Yeah. So the, um, what people say is the most painful ant sting is a bullet ant, which is a species that I've worked with, which is in the central and South American tropics. And, um, and I've 
and so there's this guy, Justin Schmidt, who invented a pain scale for and, and has tested uh, the pain <laughs> level of various kinds of stings. And the scale goes from one to four, um, with a honeybee being a one. And then there's a couple things which are fours. One is a pespis wasp, which is a tarantula hawk. If you ever if you've ever seen a wasp that's like absolutely huge and dark black or iridescent. Blue. Oh yeah, I've heard of those actually. Right. And they hunt tarantulas, right? Right. So those have a painful sting. And then um and then bullet ants are, according to him, a four, which are equivalent. And so and yeah, it was really, really, really painful. Yeah. Um Jeez. and so I got stung by one once when I was not being careful in the lab. It was not good. How did it happen? Um, um so so I was weighing uh the ant. And so like the do you put them on the the balance like the scale and so the but the thing is you can't just since ants walk and walk around you just can't weigh it um so you put it in a container and then what happens is then you put the container on the balance and then you subtract the weight of the container and then you could figure out how much the ant weighs and so what happened was is i was um uh i had weighed the ant and then what I needed to do was to like subtract out the weight of the, the container that they were in, including the lid. Right. But then I noticed that I noticed that the lid I that I already had put away the lid for that container. And I was like, oh, I need to grab a lid. And so then I saw another container like, you know, on the countertop and I just opened that container off to take the lid so I could weigh it. Um, but I had wasn't paying enough attention to realize that that container actually had an ant in it. And as soon as I, uh, I opened it up, like it just got me on my finger oh, um, and there was, and there was like an extreme. And, and so, and I was really yelling and I was really mad at myself because it was entirely my fault. Right? right. If I was paying the slightest bit of attention, it wouldn't have happened. And so, and the student who I was working with, who I was training to work with these ants in the first place, she was already anxious about working with bullet ant in any way. And so, um, you know, then my string of like, you know, screaming and foul language and flinging it across the room. And, you know, it wasn't good. It was not good uh, at all. Geez. And so the the way I would describe the pain is it's as if, because it was, because where it was on my finger, it's as if someone were to like take a, like a heavy hammer and then hammer my finger on the counter as hard as they can. It felt like my finger was crushed, really. Oh. Um, Have any of your yeah, students I mean, was, gotten uh, stung? Um, I think a couple have been stung in the course of doing field work, like accidentally while working with them. But then there's actually like, oddly enough, I've had at least a few, um, who actually intention after working with them for a while, intentionally wanted to get stung because they wanted to know what it was like. Cause they've seen people get stung or they've wanted to know what it was like, you know, they've heard the stories, but they're like, Oh, how bad can it be? I really, really want to find out. Right. Um, and, and so, um, and actually at one point I wasn't there for this, but there was a photographer, a well-known, uh, ant photographer, um, ant scientist on site working with them. And he actually made a photo shoot of them intentionally stinging themselves. <laughs> I've heard this thing about like troops of ants and like, they go and like fight each other to gain more territory. Uh, what's that all about? So a lot of ants are territorial, right? And so they have a colony where the the colony has this certain area that they use to defend and that's where they get their food from. And so an ant's biggest enemy is another colony of the same species, right? right? And so um, 
these kinds of interactions happen a lot, but in pavement ants, which you find all over um, um, North America all the time, if you just, um, if you've ever, especially in springtime and early summer, if you've ever seen like huge numbers of ants, like out on the sidewalk all at once in these huge aggregations, that then what that is, is that's a boundary between two of these pavement ant colonies. And then they're basically going to war and establishing that. And so if you go back later, you'll find all these dead bodies of all of these ants. Um, mm. And so that, you know, people call them these pavement ant wars, for example. Mm. Um, and so a lot of times these territorial conflicts, in general, animals don't want to engage in these large scale battles because those are costly, right? Because right. you're gonna, because even if you win, you know, there's this loss because you've had all these individuals get killed or whatnot. And so, um, and so a lot of these conflicts are more about assessing the strength of the other colony to see how large they are. And, or you might have individuals break out in fights along the ter along the edge of the territory and that affect where they forage. And so just like how countries establish borders without always going to war, then ant colonies often will want to do that too. But there are some right. cases where there are some absolute, you know, but then there are also other kinds of ants that do things that are very, you know, so army ants, for example, it's, that's their common name is their army ants. And so they are specialized predators on other ants. And so mm. um, why well, I said an ant's biggest enemy is another colony of the same kind. Well, that is true if they're competing over territory. But but on the other hand, um, especially, in the, especially in the tropics where army ants are super abundant, um, like ant colonies um, living on the ground or underground or sometimes even up in trees will get attacked by these army ants who see them as prey. Um, and so, and so the, usually they don't necessarily kill off the entire colony that they're attacking, but they take the brood, like the baby ants, the larvae and the pupae, and they, you know, take those as food items. Mm. Um, and so, um, and so army ants literally are these roaming predators and some colonies of army ants. Um, well, in Africa, these army ants could be millions of individuals in some species just roaming like you can hear the ground crackle, you know, and like, you know, <laughs> you know, lizards and squirrels get out of the way because they could kill them like they, right. they could potentially attack anything in their way. But they're principally going after other ants. Um, and so and so there's other kinds of ants that like sort of wage this all outish war. And so there's these ants that you could call them pirate ants or kidnapper ants. Um, there's a historic name that's um, that we that isn't quite appropriate that people call them slave making ants, um, which I'm really uncomfortable with. And we're changing that terminology. But what these ants do, these kidnapper or pirate ants, um, is um, they're a specialized species that raid the colonies of of another species of ant and steal away the brood, like the larvae and the pupae from those colonies and bring them back to their own colony. And mm. then what they do is they raise them as if they're their own. Um, and so those ants that they steal are then incorporated into the part of that kidnapper ant colony. Right. And so essentially it's like they don't, instead of raising their own workforce by feeding all of their workers, they do create some of their own workers, but then they also steal other workers before they're born and build them into their own workforce. Right. Um, and so they do that in the, in the summertime when they conduct raids, you know, and they actually like 
like will target a colony and raid into them and steal who's in there. That's cool. Yeah. And um, you said that uh, ants of the same species fight over territory. So what happens when you have ants of different species in the same area? Is there a possibility that they can like coexist or like even be within the same like tunnels as each other? Is that something that happens? Um, so there are a few cases. So the, the fancy word for this is called parabiosis. There are a few cases of ants that are parabiotic where one species actually lives with another species. Um, but that's clearly an exception. And so in general, um, like the physical quality of the ants inhabit has just that one species in it. Um, and so in general, um, in ecology, the closer, the more competition there is for resources, the more likely that you're going to be in competition with them over space or territory. So if an ant, if two ant species have different food sources and they nest in different places, you know, then they could ignore one another, right? Because if one's, you know, collecting this one kind of bug and the other one is primarily feeding on nectar, for example, then they have no cause to fight. They can overlap. And why would they do that? But if you have two species that have a dietary overlap, then they're probably more likely going to be excluding one another. Um, but then again, you know, to us, we all sort of think of ants as tiny. But if you right. look at this from the ants perspective, a large ant compared to a small ant is like an order of magnitude in size bigger in terms of mass. And right. so if you're a really, really big ant, even if you're eating the same kind of food, you'd be eating larger chunks of them. And so the smaller ones might not even matter to you. Right. And so, so, um, so basically the more similar the ants are in terms of size and what they eat, then they're more likely going to be fighting over space. But a lot of ants aren't necessarily, I mean, plenty of ants are territorial, at least within their own species. But when it comes to interactions with other species, then those other ones could be living in their territories, but they don't necessarily fight over it, but they don't get the resources as quickly. Um, so there was this really cool experiment um, some folks did in Australia where there's this one kind of ant um, called a meat ant, which are really behaviorally dominant. They like they are in large numbers across the landscape and they basically chase away other ants. And so they put a fence that, uh, or they put a fence around um, a meat, meat ant colony and then looked at what happened to all the other ants in the area. And it turned out that they saw all these species the moment they put up this fence that they were there the whole time, but they never really detected them. And so these, but once the, once the meat ants disappeared, then the colonies, then you would find all these other ants out foraging. So the meat ants weren't, so what I, what I find interesting about this is that those ants were always there. It's not like they just showed up on the spot when the fence went up, right. but by putting the fence, but by putting up the fence around the meat ant colony, what we saw is all those other ants we're now foraging more freely without being afraid of the meat ants and without the meat ants chasing them away from the food. Um, and so that they were a lot more easy to detect. And so, um, so clearly that's, that shows the importance of competition in structuring who's there, but also it shows the important that shows that they can still coexist even when you have these dominant ants present. Um, I also should add, this is, also, I think it's super cool. There are these really tiny ants um, in many parts of the world that are called thief ants, which are some of the smallest ants. And you don't see them too often. They mostly live underground. And they, and they often 
and they have small size colonies and they make a living primarily by stealing food from inside the nests of other ants. They just burrow little tunnels in and grab food from the side and then leave. Um, often undetected and no one really cares about, you know, right. in those ant colonies, they don't seem to care a lot about it, but, um, but they are having, and so uh, there's some um, work by this now as a PhD student in Florida, who, um, Leo Rama, who showed, who is showing that actually these thief ants are far more common than we realized. Right. Um, and it's just like, we just haven't been looking for them. And um, how did ants evolve to be so social? A way to think about this is to look at where this kind of sociality has evolved in other places of the world or, or you know, across the evolutionary tree of animals, right? Um, and different locations in the world. And so the idea, so the different aspects that makes ants extremely social is that you have what we call the reproductive division of labor, which means that the, the queens and the males do reproduction and, but then some other individuals are not reproductive, but they're doing work for the colony. And then you also have cooperative brood care. That means you're caring together for your young. And so everybody works together to raise the, the baby ants. Um, and then you also have many generations all living together at the same time, overlapping generations. And those also in some kinds of ants are like sort of even more advanced in how and they divide tasks in many different ways and they have specialized castes and, and so on. Um, and so if you look at those three things about the cooperative brood care and the reproductive division of labor and um, overlapping generations, you know, like if you look at, say, a den of coyotes or a den of wolves, for example, you know, they have they're close. They're highly social as well. Right. Where everybody is potentially reproductive, but some are more reproductive than others. And they work together to raise the pups in the den. And sometimes you have more than one generation in a den. And so, you know, and so they're highly social, too. Um, but so, but if you look at, uh, what we typically call social insects, all ants with a few weird exceptions and, uh, different kinds of bees and different kinds of wasps and, uh, all termites show this level of, of sociality. But then also there's a few ones in other groups that do this as well. You have some aphids that live in the galls of plants um, that do this. You have these shrimp off the coast of Belize that live in these cavities in a coral reef and they have king shrimp, shrimp and queen shrimp and worker shrimp and they're truly social just like ants or bees are, but they're shrimp. Um, right. And there's also um, uh, naked mole rats um, which do the same thing. A colony of naked mole rats has a king and a queen naked mole rat. And you have worker naked mole rats and you have soldier naked mole rats in the colony. They're truly social, just like that. And what's really interesting is that someone actually predicted that you would have a mole rat like that before they were even discovered to be truly social. So I thought that was kind of cool. Oh, um, cool. And another example that people don't talk about um, is that there are these... Um, worms. There are flatworms that are truly social that live inside the guts of fish, I believe. And they have king and queen flatworms and there's a whole colony that does their thing, um, but they're parasitic inside the guts of fish. And so if you ask, what do all of these things have in common? How is it that these evolved to become highly social? 
then the one characteristic that they share um, is that, as one person put it, it's a, a factory within a fortress. So you have a physically defended space. And so if you think of all these, like ant colonies are like underground where like they are protected. Or you could have a termite that are living in wood. Or a wasp is in a wasp nest, but it's clearly protected because you don't have with a wasp nest because they'll sting you and be mean. You know, or these shrimp uh, are in these cavities in the in the coral reef, right? Mm -hmm. And so, so that level of protection has them living together in social groups, and then it's basically it's a factory meaning that they produce a large quantity of um of babies and so that it's so that it's more and even if you're not very very closely related to those individuals that are being produced there's so many of them that are being produced that right. essentially that you're that you have greater benefit um and so how and so this is actually the question that led me to be interested in studying ants in the first place. How how does the sociality evolve? And um, in our evolutionary reconstructions, we've answered a lot of questions about this. But this said, this is still the topic of a huge number of agreements, of disagreements and arguments about, um, you know, what are the environmental and genetic factors that lead to the evolution of sociality and why have some groups done this and some groups have not? Some people will say that it's primarily about nutrition and development, and other people say that it's primarily about genetics. And so parsing this argument gets like really, really detailed. But this is the kind of thing that um, that um, you know people who study social insects you know get really excited about. And why do you think studying ants is important? Um, well, because they run the world. Um, I mean, little things run the world, um, but this is also true for birds. This is also true for microbes, right? And um, this is also true for, um, you know, top predators um, and fungi, uh, mycorrhizal fungi also run the world. And so it seems like, especially if you're in North America, the ants just happen to be a thing that exists. And if you were to disappear the ants, that the world wouldn't be radically different. Um, and especially when you go spend time in the tropics, you can see the ants are everywhere performing all different kinds of ecological roles, um, and, and constitute a huge amount of biomass. Just the amount of mass of ants in the world is just so huge, um, right. that they have an outsized role. Um, but even if you go places where they're not as abundant or common, like in an alpine meadow or places where it's cool, cooler, once it gets cooler, you have fewer ants. The ants that are there perform important functions for um, for not just tilling the soil, but also for distributing seeds, for example. And mm. so, um, so, you know, ants impact the world around them. And so, but I think more generally speaking, uh, it's just important for us to understand biodiversity. And then this is the corner of biodiversity that I've decided to specialize on. And I think they're just um, uh, a cool lens for seeing the world. And so I, I feel like when I'm studying ants, part of it, like in my heart, okay, it's for the sake of ants because I think ants are super cool. But um, but they are genuinely important in a lot of different ways. Um, right. And 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 in many ways we have yet even to realize and so almost a lot of our 
most important scientific discoveries have been serendipitous coming from places where we've never even realized. Um, and so um, who knows when the next thing that we discover about ants is going to be, um, you know, critically important. You know, it could be a characteristic of some of their venom having a biomedical utility. Um, we've learned so many lessons about coevolution and agriculture from studying how fungus growing ants like leafcutter ants uh, manage their fungal gardens, for example. And so there are a lot of pragmatic uses for this stuff. Studying for knowledge's sake and just trying to understand how the world works is also important too. Right. And what would you say is the favorite part of your job? Like out of everything that you do, the research, the teaching, what's your favorite? I like going out into the field with people, usually students, um, and they see something for the first time and it just blows their mind and they think it's so cool. It's like it's like getting someone to see something hands-on for the first time. Right. And so now since I'm, I'm working in this field station and so when, stu when pe students get out into the field, you know, they see a scorpion for the first time. They've actually never seen a real life scorpion. Or when you're when uh -huh. you go out with a black light at night, scorpions glow under a black light. And so if you're trying to find scorpions, you go out with black lighting and you'll see them walking around the desert and people are like, oh, my God, that's that's just amazing. And it just it blows their mind. So like <laughs> like like one particular memory I have is so there's this one kind of ant. The common name we, is a Cappadocian ant. And so it is named after this, I believe, Turkish culture of Cappadocia, or which is modern day Turkey, where they people lived in, um, were in these caverns that, and they would, whenever to prevent, prevent attacks, to defend themselves from attacks, they would roll a really big stone at the entrance to their, um, their caverns to protect mm -hmm. themselves from, from raids. And there's this one, these Cappadocian ants to protect themselves from army ants. Um, what they do is they roll, whenever they smell army ants, they will roll this little ball that blocks their nest entrance. So army ants can't enter inside their nest through that entrance. Mm -hmm. And so um, not many people have seen this and it's not an extraordinarily well-documented phenomenon, but it's a super cool thing that happens. And so uh, there's a student I was working with who was going to be working on a project involving this species. Um, and I explained it to her about how it works or whatever. Um, and we've been talking about it for months before we actually had gone to the rainforest where this happens to describe it. And we go there and then we do the thing where this little tiny ant comes out of its nest and it grabs a little pebble and it drags and plugs its nest shut. And just like, just like the joy of like, oh my God, that is so cool. That's so fun. That's so interesting. Um, mm -hmm. You know, that, that, that's just enjoyable. Um, just, to, you know, to share nature with people. And what would you say is the least favorite part of your job? Grading. Um, so if, in, in terms of teaching, um, so it's like, it's like, um, you know, you know, grades don't help anybody learn. Right. When, right. Like, I mean, you, you might be taking, you might be working harder to get an A, but you're not working to learn to get an A. You're just working to jump through the hoops to get the A, you know, right. it's like, there's a difference between learning and getting a good grade. Um, right. And so like our university kind of compels us in the situation we're supposed to evaluate what students do to, I mean, like grading is a term that you use for like beef, right? There's a grade A beef and grade B beef, right? You know, or right. a restaurant that has too many cockroaches will get a B instead of an A from the public health department, you know, and, and, um, and so that's what we're doing to our students. We're grading them. And so I don't, so I find that process distasteful and how our whole system values that, but also, um, 
like just the pro the itself just going through stacks of papers and evaluating and putting number it, like it's just unpleasant right all right well um those are pretty much all the questions that i've got for you so thank you so much for your time it has been a real honor speaking with you yeah yeah and, thank uh, you for your time yeah I, it's been i'm glad to be on your podcast Thanks for listening. You can find Professor McGlynn on Twitter at Ormiga, spelled H-O-R-M-I-G-A, and me at Nathan Kim at risk. Also, our Instagram is under the same user. If you want to go find us there, then great. I know that in the previous bonus episode, I said that I would be releasing only once every two weeks, but I decided against it, and I am going to try my best to stick to a weekly schedule as much as possible, and I'm so sorry for the confusion. As always, special thanks to Kira Costin, who designed the cover art for the show, and feel free to reach out to us using the voice message link in the show notes. Anyways, those are all the announcements for this week. Next week, Humans with Mac and Murphy, the host of the podcast Species.